Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. We're doing a double episode this week, and honestly, this could have been a triple or quadruple deal episode, given all the activity we've seen this month. In fact, October, if you can believe it, is going to be the biggest deal volume month in history on record. That's how much deal activity came this month. Uh, Of course, the big one was AT&T buying Time Warner, but still... Many other very large deals announced this month. Uh, The first one we will discuss is a pretty big one, a $34 billion deal with that included in the telecommunications industry. CenturyLink is buying Level 3 in a cash stock deal. And then a deal we've discussed before on this podcast that's officially dead. So don't, don't add that one into the volume. Gannett has thrown in the towel in its pursuit of buying Tronc. Uh, They threw it, they basically gave up because of financing concerns We'll speak with Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Brooke Sutherland in just a few minutes. But let's get this thing rolling today with Bloomberg Telecom reporter Scott Moritz, who covers the wireless industry extended, including CenturyLink and Level 3, and Brooke's colleague, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Tara LaChapelle, to discuss this big telecom deal first. Uh, First, welcome, both of you. Thanks, Alex. Uh, Scott, let's start with you. So CenturyLink and Level 3, these aren't exactly household names to most people. What do these companies do? Well, Alex, you hit on a, a smart point there. The, these guys aren't well known, uh, in they're not a lot well known in their industry either. The, the uh, <laughs> that's true. I cover this industry, and I don't really know what they do. <laughs> I mean, they they are like the fourth player in in the door at uh, trying to sell services to businesses. Um, you know, they 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 hustle on in terms of price and you know services and value and et cetera. But they're up up against AT and T and Verizon. The, these are the guys who'll take the buyers out to golfing and, and dinner, and you know they, it's a, it's a tough sell right there. So just so that I understand, they're connecting businesses with like internet and phone, sort of like what Comcast or AT and T or Verizon does. Yeah, it's like a basic utility. You need a broadband to run a business. You you need to get all your servers connected, and this is what these guys do. This is the basic big pipe into the into the office. Into the okay, business. gotcha. And then they sell services on top of that, the so-called yeah. business Security, services. Security, cloud, you know, all the other stuff that Got everybody it. else sells. Uh, so, Tara, what, why does this deal make sense or not make sense? I mean, I think it makes sense because CenturyLink doesn't really have a whole lot of other options right now to grow. I mean, if you look at their uh, core phone business, obviously landline phones are going away. And even on the business customer side, it's very difficult when you've got folks like AT&T going that way, too. So the competition is really tough. Their margins are compressing, revenues going down. So I think from that standpoint, they kind of need to do something. And level three is sort of a better position than them. At the same time, I think a lot of shareholders don't like this deal because CenturyLink, for all of its problems, still has a really good dividend that it pays investors. And if they're doing a $34 billion deal and a good part of that is with debt and they already have so much debt the concern is you know how do they maintain that dividend they say they will but i think that's what has investors nervous is it a, is this deal a surprise because it seems to me as i was doing a little research when the deal was uh first broken i'll give my my uh, colleagues at the wall street journal credit for breaking this one you know i sort of thought oh i'm surprised that this didn't pop on my radar earlier it seems like a fairly logical fit for these two companies that have sort of run out of growth to 
come together. And yet, uh, no one had really mentioned this deal to me for years doing this beat. Is it because the focus for these companies had simply been on smaller acquisitions? Because they both have bought a lot of things in recent years. Right. They've been rolling up sort of their sides of the industry. Um, Level 3 bought TW Telecom most recently, I think. And then you had uh, CenturyLink buying Quest and then Embark, which was that part of Sprint Nextel <laughs> that they spun off. So, I mean, not the greatest of deals. And I, I think... People were talking about this in the context of you know what mergers could happen on that side of it. There's a few other companies' names that have come up as well, but none of them really have a strong balance sheet. So I think that's where it kind of you know there were t- there was talk about it, but you weren't ever really sure when it would come together. Yeah, no, th- th- these guys have you know fallen into a, a weak position. Uh, obviously, they feel stronger together. And I talked to a bull today about this, and he, he says, you know. It's been a tough slog for them, but this makes them a, a, a much more compelling investment. You know, as they try to gain more revenue share in the in the market. I think the timing was perfect too, because if you look at the other companies that could be potential bidders, I think one of them is, is Zayo. Zayo, I don't know how to pronounce Zayo. it. Yeah, Zayo. Yeah. They they're probably too small to counter bid at this kind of a price. I think they're about a little bit smaller than uh, level three. And then you look at AT and T and Comcast, and AT and T is obviously very busy with Time Warner. Comcast, it sounds like they might be going more the uh, T Mobile deal route. So I think that kind of gave CenturyLink an opportunity to look at something like this. Yeah, Zayo, they're the real upstart in the world of business <laughs> services, fiber. I want to talk to Scott you a little bit because you've covered this industry for a while, and we were talking offline about this, how uh, these companies spent uh, a lot of money, uh, even even more than just CenturyLink and Level 3, but broadly speaking, companies spent a ton of money in like the late 90s, very early 2000s on fiber. Yeah. That seemed to be like the, you know, the, the, the wave of the future would be, let's build all this fiber into the ground, we'll be able to connect everyone, and then... They haven't been able to do anything with the fiber. Explain exactly why that's happened this way. Yeah, well, the great internet boom, right? Uh, there was so much money going around for companies that were going to provide the kind of capacity that we were going to need in the future. It, it all came true in, in, in terms of where traffic was headed. I mean, we all know, basically, we use a lot of our broadband uh, connections driving a lot of traffic. But what we saw was that... Uh, they, at the time, they had overfunded and overbuilt to the point where their business models collapsed. You know, and this was one right after another after another, where, you know, you saw. Most recently, Global Crossing was one of the bigger ones, and they got bought by Level Three. Um, you know, prior to that, it was Williams Communica- Williams Communications, which was uh, you know another fi- you know cross country fiber play. Um, you know, what we have left is a lot of capacity still. Uh, they call it dark fiber because it, it, it's not even connected to anything. It just sits underground. Um, it seems like at some point, you know, this 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 pendulum will swing back to where we need some of this capacity. And, and maybe in, in that scenario, uh, a, a CenturyLink that's consolidated so much of this fiber will, will look more impressive. But right now, it's, it's a little difficult. Yeah, all those fiber companies, if you go back and look at their stock charts, even if they don't exist anymore, they all – spike up in 2000 and then it's just yeah. you know a collapse in 2001 and then it's a flat line uh from Brutal. that if yeah. not if not even more declining after that mm-hmm. uh yeah look even more recently we've seen google fiber sort of throw in the towel on their invention google wanted to hook up selected cities with consumer internet not just business mm-hmm. internet thinking that maybe they could 
sort of invent a better, more consumer-friendly product than what the cable guys have put in there. But all the analysts said at the time, there's no way this is going to advance. It's just too expensive. It doesn't make any sense. And sure enough, that does seem to be the way Google is moving here, where I think they've basically said, we're not going to do this anymore. Well, they smartly uh, did showcase cities to uh, basically stimulate the other you know, incumbent, as they call them, uh, providers like the local phone companies to speed up their process and get fiber to more homes. So it, it worked for Google because Google's you know business model is ads. right. It's not this. Right. No, it's not fiber. Um, uh, last thoughts, Tara. Does uh, so we don't expect any other bidder here. I don't this think probably so, just goes no. through as is, and there's no regulatory if it, if issues. If it goes through, I mean, if you look at the stock, I think CenturyLink is down 16 percent this week. So obviously their shareholders hate this deal. Right. So, so and it does need to be approved yeah, by shareholders. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So maybe that's sort of the biggest question mark yeah. of this deal is is uh, will Century share CenturyLink shareholders revolt or do they have any other better plan? I right. suppose CenturyLink is. They're also selling their data center business, by the way, which that small sale, two and a half billion or so, should wrap up fairly soon, from my understanding. Uh, okay, we'll move to Tronkinet in a second, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Okay, let's bring in Bloomberg Gadfly columnist Brooke Sutherland to talk about the deal that isn't after months and months and months of discussing this deal. Brooke, I think you've been on six times already on this podcast talking about this. Um, trunk. Trunk. The reason I like this deal so much is that it, I can say the word trunk. So Gannett deciding finally, uh, once and for all, they are not going to pursue uh, a bid for trunk. This after we broke the story a few days ago that the financing had evaporated on Gannett. The two sides actually did have a handshake agreement for $18.75 a share, and now the deal is not going to happen. So my main question for you, Brooke, is is either side happy about this? I mean, I think if you're Gannett shareholders, you're probably a little bit happy that they're not doing this deal at $18.75 a share. I mean, this is a company that when Gannett first came in was trading at $7.50 a share. So we're talking about a ridiculous premium for a company, you know, that that is still very much struggling. It's made some improvements over the last year, done some cost cuts, improved profitability, but much of its turnaround is still theoretical. I mean, and the revenue growth is just not there. So it's not clear why you would pay that much for this company. So that is a very logical take on something. And yet, really, it seems like this deal collapsed because Gannett couldn't get the financing. In other words, Gannett shareholders perhaps are happy about their own company's failure Mm -hmm. to work with the correct banks to finance this deal. Or maybe the banks were the only ones that had any sanity here. And they said, look, this is an outrageous price for this company. Your own company's not doing very well. We just don't have confidence we're going to get our money back if we lend it to you. Yeah, and you know, I think the issue, to put a finer point on it, I mean, the more Gannett stock dropped, the more you sort of had to question, okay, is this the right direction for the company? Is this the right valuation to be talking about in this deal? Now, if you're Tronk shareholders, though, you've got to be pretty upset this morning to see how far your share price has now come down. And I mean, really, the only thing propping up that share price was takeover speculation. It's still a little bit higher than where it was back in April, which I think you know speaks to some of those profitability improvements. 
it's still nowhere near what Gannett was going to offer. And it's in really difficult to see how it gets to that price on its own anytime soon. So let's walk this back for people that may not be so familiar with this deal, because this is a fascinating turn of events over this course of the year. So let's start in February. Mm-hmm. Tronc, as you said, Tronc was trading under $8 a share. It sold some shares to Michael Farrow, who was uh, this the, the new chairman who was coming in. He has some newspaper experience uh, for... Uh, I believe eight seventy five a share. I think that was the initial sale. The company sold sh- uh, shares directly to to Pharaoh. At that point, then Gannett comes along, and Gannett says, "Okay, we want to make you an offer." I believe twelve twenty five yes. was the offer price at that point, which was a big premium to eight seventy five uh, in just like three months. Mm-hmm. And yet, Pharaoh said, "No, don't want to do the deal. Think it undervalues the company." I think he said, "Stealing the company." Stealing the at company, one point. right? Yeah. Even though, again. The company just sold him shares at nine bucks or so. So then Gannett actually ups its offer again to fifteen dollars a share, and Tronk again says no. And not only does Tronk say no, it then sells more shares to this billionaire Patrick Soon Xiang mm-hmm. for fifteen dollars a share, the exact same price. The thinking there being, well, Patrick Soon Xiang is buying this thing for growth, our plan, instead of just selling it at fifteen a share. Again, somehow the company decided it was not worth it to sell for $15 a share at that point, even though five months earlier or so it had been valued at $8.75. And finally, the two sides make an agreement at $18.75, and the deal collapses, and now there's no deal at all, and now shares are trading under $10 again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, That sounds to me how not to do M&A, and you have to wonder... Is something going on here where Michael Farrell really just didn't want to sell the company and was able to do his fiduciary duty and got a great price and the thing fell apart and now he walks away looking like, well, I did my best here. Uh, I'm not sure that I believe that per se, but if you're a Tronk shareholder, you really need to believe in management at this point in order to be happy walking away. Well, and there were already shareholders that were not happy. I mean, I think Oak Tree has been very outspoken. They're a very large shareholder in Tronk, Tribune Publishing, whatever you want to call it. Um, And they've been very vocal about not being happy about the tactics that Michael Farrow took to try to push off Gannett. They, from the beginning, said, we think you need to sit down with Gannett. We think a higher price can be reached, but you need to be open to having these talks. And, you know, it will be interesting to see how shareholders react to this deal falling apart. Um, Yes, it does sound like, you know, in the end, they did sit down and try to talk. But Maybe if he'd been more willing to talk earlier, a a deal could have gotten done. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what Tronk shareholders do here and if there is any more sort of legal steps taken. So let's talk about something maybe they can do outside of the legal process. Is there any chance that there's some other buyer here for Tronk? I really don't know who it would be. I mean, all of the newspaper deals we've seen done have been, for the most part, done by very wealthy individuals. Or, you know, there was the FT, which was bought by the Nikkei. Um, it's just not clear who has the resources in the publishing world to do this um, from a strategic perspective. So short of another billionaire coming along and saying, OK, I'm going to buy this. I, I just don't know. And it doesn't make sense to me, you know, why somebody else would be willing to pay what Gannett was willing to pay, unless you're just buying this as a trophy asset. But I, I don't know. <laughs> so let's talk about the other side of this, which is Gannett. Now, Gannett mm-hmm. has actually already publicly said, uh, expect us to do different M&A here. Like, we're on the hunt again for something to buy. What 
could they buy that makes any sense for them that would actually move the needle? Yeah, I mean, and it does make sense that Gannett is still pushing acquisitions because, I, I mean, this is their whole strategy, that you buy companies, you take out all the costs, you add their revenue to yours, and that's how they get revenue growth. And so they can't, if you abandon that strategy, what you're left with is dwindling sales and a tough time making money in this environment. So it completely makes sense to me that they're going to keep looking for acquisitions. There's nothing quite of the scale of Tronc left out there for them. One possibility could be McClatchy, which owns like the Charlotte Observer, the Kansas City Star, the Miami Herald. Um, You know, there's been reports of them maybe looking at A.H. Bellow, um, which owns a a number of regional newspapers as well. Uh, We'll see. Yeah, this has been uh, fascinating. This will be a Harvard case study uh, in in M&A or or perhaps how not to do M&A. and again, it seems like both sides on this one sort of, I spoke to an advisor, uh, to this deal. I won't say for which side, but several weeks ago, he told me if this deal doesn't get done, uh, a, a plague on both their houses. Is that the Shakespeare phrase? Is I it think a pox so. on both their houses or I think a, it's plague, a plague, a plague yeah. on both their houses? Maybe yeah. both. I don't right. know. Right. <laughs> Maybe it's both. Exactly. I'm, I have to brush up on my Shakespeare. Um, Brooke Sutherland, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Uh, who has written about this deal several times. Uh, do you have one more column on this, or are, are you throwing in the towel on Gannett uh, No, I think well? I've got one more coming. One more so coming up soon. Tuned. Exactly, read that one. <laughs> and thanks for you all for listening to the show. Until next week, uh, please find us, as always, on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app uh, you use to listen to podcasts. We will have more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time on the show then. And please take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or guests on the show, please email me, asherman6 at Bloomberg.net. Brooke, where can we find you on Twitter? At B-L-S-U-T-H. And then Scott is at Moritz Dispatch. Scott Moritz, who you heard earlier. And Tara LaChapelle is at Tara Latch, L-A-C-H. See you next week. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.